As I said, our scripture text this morning is Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah 6 can be found on page 726 of your pew Bibles. In this we come to the vision of the Lord that Isaiah sees, and this will begin what is our our Advent series. Awaiting Advent is the name of the series, so the intent is to go through these texts, important texts of Isaiah that speak to the coming Lord Jesus Christ and, and see various pictures, various imagery of him. And we begin here in Isaiah 6 that we would see the, the image, the truth of the Lord upon his throne. This is a grand vision that Isaiah receives, one that truly portrays the greatness of our God. Before we read, let's ask for his blessing. Father in heaven, we see in this chapter a great vision of what none of us have been able to truly see, at least yet in our our lives. One day we await that when you either take us home or when we go to or when you come to us but lord we get to see here what is truly going on in the in the heavens to truly see what is your glory and to depict your holiness and your uprightness but as well as the fear and reverence with which we come before you and and with which we set our gaze upon who you are and help that that picture come alive before us, your greatness and grandeur, as well as the response of our our unworthiness, but your worthiness that overcomes this. Father, we pray that your your name would be magnified even in our thoughts and our minds as we read and meditate on this word. We ask this in your name. Amen. Isaiah 6, beginning in verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, Here am I, send me. And he said, Go and say to this people, Keep on hearing but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Then I said, How long, O Lord? And he said, Until cities lie waste without inhabitant and houses without people, and the land is a desolate waste. And the Lord removes people far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. 
And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. Ascends the reading of God's word. As we come to this vision, we should ask the question, why? Why do we take it up? Why Isaiah? Why Isaiah at this time? We have just gone through the book of Lamentations, which describes what actually takes place chronologically, what's past Isaiah, later than Isaiah. But we turn to the book of Isaiah because in this prophecy, though it be some 100 to 150 years before the events of Lamentations and the exile, though it, though it comes before that, Isaiah, through the prophetic word of God, through that infallible, inspired word of God, speaks with certain clarity on all the events that will happen leading up to that time, on that time itself, and what will take place past that. And what will take place even up until our time today, some 2,700 years past the time in which Isaiah uttered these words and received this vision, and that's still being fulfilled even in our day right now. And that we sitting in, in these pews, having been able to see so much of Isaiah fulfilled, have that confidence to see even what he has spoken about in its complete fulfillment. So we come to Isaiah as it fits well with what we've gone through in Lamentations and even seeing it a certain way. As we went through the book of Lamentations, we heard repeatedly that God did not formally speak in that book. There there was no, thus saith the Lord in response. There was no visions from the Lord. It was was the people of God left in grief to deal with it, to, to understand how to respond in the midst of it. But Isaiah, as well as other books of God's word, show us that that wasn't, wasn't all the Lord had to say. You see, it wasn't just lament. And that's why I wanted to turn to it now, because even what should have guided the people throughout the destruction, and what would guide the people in the exile, and what would guide the people even as sort of this, this ragtag group comes back into the land, and, and all the time leading up to Christ, and even of that time now that what would guide us is that the fulfillment of what these words say. That what would guide us is that God has, has not only said it will, be, it will be exile, it will be punishment, but that there is there's an answer, there's hope. That the Lord is on his throne, and though great sadness, though great hardships await, though a prophetic word is to be given and not heard, God does not utterly reject. God will bring back. And this is what we see in Isaiah, and we'll see as we go through this series. But why do we begin here? Why do we begin in chapter 6? In part, it's because we're not going to go through the entirety of the book of Isaiah. We pick up in chapter 6, which which is a beginning of sorts. It's either the, the initial commissioning of Isaiah that's put later in the book, or what I believe to be the case, a, a sort of recommissioning, a recommitment to what he's been called to that comes a bit later in his service as a prophet. And so it does, in a sense, begin here uh, a, a, an idea, a segment in Isaiah, which is not only that the people are to be judged, but that it's the Lord on his throne who's doing it and has a plan within it. A plan to direct attention to here in our text. It's called a stump, a seed that remains. And what we'll see as we go through is, is also described as, as a stump, as the seed or root of Jesse. 
who is described as Emmanuel in the land, the one to dwell. This is what we'll see as, as Isaiah begins to direct our attention to, yes, this judgment to come, but something past it, something greater. In many ways, the book of Isaiah presents the fullness of the gospel. I don't mean that we didn't have a need for more words from God. That's why we have the New Testament. But Isaiah has been called in miniature the entirety of the Bible, that, that virtually the book of Isaiah is that Bible in miniature. And I think that's a true depiction of it. It's no great mystery why so many of the Gospel writers and New Testament writers refer and cite the book of Isaiah. It, de it, it depicts more clearly there than almost anywhere else what is going to happen and the Messiah and who, who he will be, what he will bring about. And though the first five chapters of Isaiah have dealt largely with judgment to come, here we see the Lord upon his throne. And so we start our journey here in Isaiah 6. We begin here with this series because we catch a glimpse of God on his throne before that God, that same God, comes and steps down and comes to this earth. Before he does that, he gives this plan to his prophet and to his people. It begins with that sort of time marker, but I think is more than just a, a means to date. It says, in the year that King Uzziah died. Now, that's, that's not just, it was this time when this happened. I think what this is saying is the significance of the hopelessness of the people. You see, the, the historical situation here is that King Uzziah, who had a long and powerful reign, who was a stable king in the land and for the people of Judah... He has died, and with his death, Judah likely now starts to begin to feel the hopelessness of their situation amidst the nations around them. It's approximately 740 B.C. at this time. Assyria is making inroads all around. The emperor Tiglath-Pileser III has clearly established himself as a military commander. Assyria sets its, its eyes and its desire on Egypt. It's, it's needing to sweep through all the land to conquer all the nations in between. It seems to be an unstoppable force, but, but it perhaps to the people, Uzziah and his strength as king was in a sense something that dulled that. That this king was, was their protection, and the immediacy of that threat is blurred. And now with him being gone and removed with his son Jotham in place, who was a, a weak king, he wasn't strong. Now, now with that turning over of their leader, the hopelessness of that situation would likely set in. Uzziah is dead, and that's how this text begins. It's that sort of dooming bell in the year King Uzziah died. And likely you can hear, and, and perhaps the hope of the people with them. This is when it happens. They're in this difficult situation. Nations far, far more powerful than them, politically speaking, worldly speaking, are at their doorsteps. And they, want, they wonder what's going to happen to them. And you also notice that the fronting of the vision of the Lord on his throne is of a king who's been removed. In the year that King Uzziah died, in the year that the throne of Israel is in flux and, and weak, we see an image of the true king of the people of God sitting on his throne, and this is not a weak throne. And so on one sense, there's, there's a, an idea of hopefulness here. It's, it's a king who's seated there, a king in power, but that hopefulness is rather quickly removed. 
because of the words said, because of the holiness there. You know, it's sort of like you want a powerful king, you want a powerful God, and he's going to be with us, but, but he, all of a sudden you see this vision, and he is so powerful and so holy, you think, not that much. That's too much for us. He is so good, he is so powerful, he is so holy, that now the threat isn't just Assyria, it's actually this holy God on his throne and a wicked people that claim him as their Lord. You see how even there, there is a certain hopefulness in the stability and power of God, but that that dregs up, it it, it sweeps up this, this dust and this cloud of insecurity, even in Isaiah's own heart, and to Isaiah's own person. And this year, he receives this holy vision. We're going, to go look, we're going to look at the rest of this chapter in three points. Our first point having just been, why Isaiah? Now we look at the Holy Lord in verses 1 through 4, the Holy Lord, the great fear in verses 5 through 7, and then the strange commission of verses 8 to 13. First, the Holy Lord in these four verses. This vision of Isaiah is truly brilliant. It's one we have at times used to begin our worship service itself that we could understand the God we approach, how great and magnificent he is. Isaiah is able to to, to have this great and glorious vision to have put before him, as it were, the, the very veil of the Holy of Holies pulled back to just catch a glimpse in vision form what God is and what he's like on his throne and the terrible, awesome servants that are before him. First, we must ask, who is this Lord on his throne? Who is this Lord? I want to give a careful answer to that. He's described here as the Lord Adonai. That's who, that's who Isaiah sees. Later in God's word in the Gospel of John, chapter 1241, it's very clearly presented by him that this was Christ. That this was the son on the throne. But what, what, what I want to make sure we understand and in clarity is, is we don't want to just say, oh, it's, it's Christ on the throne. It is that, truly. But it's Christ on the throne being the very image and, and the, very, the very vision of Yahweh himself, of the true Godhead to them. That's, that's who the Son is. The Son is the image of God the Father. The Son depicts, he's the word, the revelation of who God is. And, and so what's meant here isn't just simply that, oh, we think Christ is on the throne just as he appears on earth so many years later. No, this is the Son of God in fullness and glory and splendor, even called later in the text, Yahweh of hosts. Who Isaiah sees here is the king of Israel, their God who had delivered them. The God of Exodus, the God who had done all these things, now it is through the Son as it always is. That's what I hope we would see here. It's it's, it's a grand depiction of the Lord on his throne. Representing the very triune God himself, the, the, the the true revelation of who God is, the Son. Revealing this triune Lord. This is who is seen on the throne. Notice the exalted language. First, his throne is high and lifted up. It's the idea that it's, it's so grand. We're not very familiar with monarchies, but we know from, from literature, from things we might watch and see that depict kings, the throne is always elevated. It's always up steps. The king doesn't sit on the level of the people. 
There's always a raised platform. There's always the idea that this, this king is above them. He's above everyone else. Well, this throne is, is high and lifted up. It's the highest of thrones. And so we, we begin to see here that, that there is no throne on earth that can compare. It's not Uzziah's throne that can compare. It's not the Assyrian throne that can compare. High and lifted up is the Lord's throne. It's exalted and none come close. Then you see, secondly, the authority and the opulence of this Lord. His train fills the temple. A couple details there. That train filling the temple is the idea as well of that authority of his richness, his wealth, his power. You know, you, you, you might witness that even in, in the current monarchy in England where they'll, on those special occasions or weddings, walk down the, 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 the aisle and there's that, long, there's that long hem of their robe in expensive material. It's meant to depict their power. It's meant to depict their wealth, their worthiness. Their, their, their garments and their robes are again to signal that they're a cut above. Well, this, this robe fills all around it. It's immense. The idea is it's, it's billowing that this, this God is on his throne and it's filling the temple. It's actually the hem of his robe. That, that outer edge of his robe is filling it. And then the idea would be this throne is so exalted that just the edge of his robe has filled the temple of God. And that's the other detail. Where is his throne situated? Where is heaven connecting to earth? It's at the temple and so Isaiah sees, he looks up, and there's this, this Lord on his throne, and even into the temple that connects the rule of heaven to earth. The throne is surrounded by the hem of this king's garment. He's high, he's exalted, he's powerful. But thirdly, we see his glory by even the magnificence of his servants. We see that it's the seraphim. Who are the seraphim? Literally, their, their name means burning ones burning ones. They're, they're immense in, in what we would call power and grandeur. And yet look at their description. They have six wings, so with two they fly. They're, they're hovering there around the throne. They're surrounding it as the attendants of the Lord, as, as those who are, are there in his presence ready to do his will and his bidding. It's the seraphim. They, they guard the presence of the Lord. They're powerful and mighty. They're, they're not something you trifle with. So with two, they fly and hover there, suspended there around the Lord. But then there's, there's two other sets of them. With two, they cover their eyes, their face. They shield themselves from the glory of God. Burning ones whose purpose in creation was to serve in the full light of the glory of God. They have built in coverlets, built in wings to, to cover them and to shield them from the, the glory and power of the Lord on his throne. How immense and powerful must this Lord be when such creatures like these do not even look at him un, unblocked, unguarded. With two, they cover their eyes. It's the power and glory of the Lord that's around them. And then two, cover their feet. There's many theories to, to what this 
could mean. I'm not persuaded necessarily of one over the other, so I'll just give some of them, that, that perhaps these wings around the feet, covering their feet, is to, to convey the idea that they're at a moment's notice ready to fly to do the will of God, that, that they will fly. Their feet are these, these wings that speed them on their way, their, their speed at which they follow the Lord. Or perhaps the, the cover there is the same type of thing they're doing with around their face and the wings around their eyes, that they're shielding something. It could be that they're, they're shielding their, their very feet, the very sign that they are as well creatures. It could be that. Others have said perhaps these, these wings down at the bottom of their feet are meant to, to even mask their own glory to mankind, that they're even shielding some of their own. Various theories, but in, in all we see the, the radiance of even these servants of the Lord. And then we see the majesty of the Lord in their words, fourthly, the majesty of the Lord in their words, they call to one another, saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Holy, what does that mean? It's repeated. It's repeated three times. That's meant to, to give it that exclamation, that, that emphasis. He is holy. What is this holiness? Holiness is what sets God apart, it, it, it in one sense describes the very fundamental nature of who he is. He is set apart. He's distinct. He's other than. He's holy, upright, perfect, pure, morally pure. One author describes it this way. Holy comes from the Hebrew word, which means to cut. To be holy means to be cut off or separate from everything else. It means to be in a class of your own, distinct from anything that has ever existed or will ever exist. To be holy is to be entirely morally pure all the time and in every way possible. God's holiness is not an aspect of who he is. No, God's holiness is in one sense the essence of who he is. And it describes every part of him. His, his power is, is utterly holy. His, his goodness is utterly holy. In all ways that he exists, whether it be his love and justice, his knowledge and understanding, it is utterly holy to the nth degree. It can't be any more distinct than what we would understand and know the Lord is set apart in grandeur and might. He is holy. And so the, the burning ones, the seraphims in all their might and power are shouting to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The Lord here being that, that word Yahweh, I am. I am being the word of existence. I, I will be what I will be. I will be who I will be. I am self-existent and set apart. Holy is the I am of hosts. What's, what's hosts? It's, it's armies, angelic armies of power and might. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord. The Lord who at his beck and call has armies of these angels and powerful ones at his disposal ready to do his will. There he is seated on the throne. Now, what does this awe-inspiring vision of God produce? We might think that it would produce an immediate worship by any bystander, and indeed it does. But it's not the worship we necessarily expect. Isaiah the prophet Isaiah, a believer, 
you would think, would he not just drink it in? He is seeing a vision of God. He's seeing a vision of this power and might and holiness. Would, would we not pay to experience it, right? Wouldn't we want to see this vision? And what does it produce in him? He doesn't just respond in, in utter awe and amazement and say, wondrous is the Lord. No, it, it produces a worship, but a very distinct form of worship. Fear. Great fear. That's our next point in verses 5 through 7. This vision of the Lord produces great fear. Isaiah is not full of immense joy and praise. He is terrified. So terrified that what does he do? He immediately pronounces a woe upon him. Woe is me. Now, if we would have gone through the first five chapters of Isaiah, you would have seen woes being pronounced on all the enemies of God, and a woe is a judgment, a declaration that death is coming, that punishment and the wrath of God should and would fall upon you. That's a woe. And now Isaiah presents it on himself. Woe is me, judged, deserving of punishment, impure, Woe is me, for I am lost. Isaiah knows he faces, in one sense, death and judgment here, or at least there's this idea he's questioning whether he can stand this, or even whether he should. You see, when confronted with the holiness of God, when, when confronted with how distinct and, and, and awe-inspiring the Lord is, you are not left with this idea that you can even see it unaided or that you are worthy of it. Your immediate response is to know this one is utterly distinct from me. I don't belong here. And by the very fact of what I'm seeing, the, the death sentence should be on me, woe. Death surrounds this text. Uzziah had already died. There was in the first five chapters the pronouncement of deaths and woe and judgments on God's people, and now Isaiah himself says woe. There's, there's this idea of death on him, and then we even see in his unlikely and, and strange commission that there's going to be death on the people. You see, there's, there's this idea that the holiness of God is ready to burn it all. Death is around them. Surrounds it, and Isaiah expects the same fate. And why? What does he say? It's because he's a man of unclean lips, dwelling in the midst of a people of unclean lips. What's this idea? Why does he center on the lips? I believe he goes to the lips because it's the tool of his trade. He's a prophet. He's meant to be the mouthpiece of God. And, and when he hears these seraphim shouting and praising the Lord with their lips, holy, 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 he's, he's reminded of the fact that his own lips don't even utter this as it should, that his own lips are unworthy, that his own lips, meant to be the mouthpiece of God to the people, are unclean and impure. I think there's another reason as well, though, that, that James will say in his book, in his epistle, that, that the tongue is this, this open door to the heart. Why do you center on the mouth? Well, what more than anything else reveals what's in your heart? It's your tongue. It's, the, it's in one sense, it's that faucet of the soul. What comes when you open out your mouth is, is what's in your very heart and soul. And, and so it, it centers there on not only who he is as a prophet, but, but even what's inside of him. And that's why he's got impure lips. And the people he's dwelling with have the same. They, they don't have the, the right praise of the Lord. 
Isaiah is undone. He has seen the Lord of hosts. The, temples are sh- the temple foundation is shaking at the words of the low servants of the Lord. And he sees that he is unworthy. He and the people have these tainted lips, and they should be rightly proclaiming praise to this holy God. And they had, there in their impurity and sin, don't even have the capacity to do it and to perfectly take it upon their own lips. Well, what happens? The magnificent burning seraph of the Lord comes at him with a burning coal from the altar. He has recognized a source of pollution and shame in himself. He's, he's in that sense, confessed a great sin and, and what happens. Now, we've read it, and so we're probably aware, oh, he's going to cleanse him. Well, I w- just put yourself in that position. This very terrifying servant of the Lord can't even touch the coal that's coming from the altar, has grabbed tongs to touch this burning brand, this coal from the altar itself, and is coming rushing at you and at your lips, no less. I don't know that you would stand there and, and just say, yeah, let it come. Yes, this is good. It's fearful. Fire and coals, what is that? Especially in the Old Testament, fire is not this just cleansing agent. That's sort of you just use, you know, we, we wipe our counters. We, we wipe our counters with cleaning solutions. We spray it around. Here it is. Let's just rub a little of that on it. Let's get some soap on it. That's not what fire is. Fire burns. Fire judges. It does cleanse, but its cleansing is by generally annihilating the substance before it. That's what a coal does. And here comes the seraphim, the the guardian of the holiness of God, coming at you with a burning coal as you've just pronounced woe upon yourself. I'm guessing Isaiah thought this was his true and righteous end. It was deserved. Here it comes. I am judged. But what does the coal do? Where's the coal from? It's from the altar. Which altar? There, there was the altar of incense. I, I don't believe that's where the seraphim went, but rather to the altar of burnt offering, I believe, is where the seraph went. In the temple courts where the, the thrones are connecting and he goes and he, he takes the tongs and takes this coal from an offering of sacrifice, from an altar that meant to the people of Israel true Payment of sin, purification, atonement. You see, the reason he isn't judged is because where is that burning branch coming from? It's coming from an altar. It's coming from a place where that is meant to make restitution, to make satisfaction for sin. Even as a burnt offering meant to depict the Lord himself, the Lord Jesus Christ, and his own sacrifice. That, that's the imagery of, of what the ceremonies of the Old Testament meant. Sacrifice pointing to the one true burnt offering, Jesus Christ. And then this, this statement then of what is great fear all of a sudden changes very quickly. One author describes the situation well. This was fire from the altar, the place where holiness accepted and was satisfied by the death of a substitutionary sacrifice. The live coal thus encapsulates the ideas of atonement, 
propitiation, satisfaction, forgiveness, cleansing, and reconciliation of these spiritual realities, Isaiah, who had pronounced death on himself, is left in no doubt when the seraph says this. What does the seraph say, having pressed this coal to his very lips? What does he say? Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. You see, with that pronouncement, we see what the coal is meant to represent. What's the only thing that can atone for sin? Hebrews will tell us only the blood of an innocent victim, only blood can atone for sin. And, and that's present in this coal from the altar. It was the blood of a sacrifice. Your guilt is taken away, your sins atoned for, your lips cleansed. From the altar, he's cleansed. And I wonder... I wonder if this is not meant to also give a little hope to the, the remnant, to the little stump of the people of God who remain. Isaiah had pronounced a judgment on himself. Isaiah was their representative of a sinful people. And what happened to him? The altar cleansed him. The coal cleansed him. I wonder if they are not meant to then see there's hope for them perhaps as well. That there is cleansing there, and the holiness of God is one that can be endured by the, very, by the very substitutionary atonement he makes, that he applies. But then it goes to the strange commission in verses 8 to 13. The Lord speaks from his throne, whom shall I send? Who will go for us? Don't miss the us there. I think that's a, a very uh, clear representation of the triune nature of our God, even before it's been clearly given in the New Testament. But there's this plurality, who will go for us? And Isaiah says, here am I, send me. Now this isn't uh, uh, an arrogance. You know, he was just pronouncing woe on himself. That showed his humility. He understood who he was, but he also understood what just happened. His lips have been cleansed, and the seraph, as speaking for the Lord, had said it, your mouth is cleansed, and, and Isaiah sees this, my mouth is cleansed, I am a prophet of the Lord, who will go and send and declare to this people this message, send me, I am a messenger ready to go. Total 180, but a proper one. What's this commission? Is it to go and send an amazing word? Rather, we hear this, these words... Listen, but they won't hear. Proclaim, but they won't obey. You will proclaim and speak, but it will harden their hearts. They will not turn. What a strange commission. Words that in one sense seem useless. It's a, it's a commission that, that the Lord gives that's characterized the prophets before Isaiah, will characterize the prophets after Isaiah, and characterizes the very ministry of Jesus Christ himself, where the Gospels actually take this text and quote it and says that it truly applies to Jesus who comes and proclaims a message of deliverance and words of repentance to the Lord and the people don't hear and they don't understand and their hearts are hardened. Isaiah foretells what is afterwards fulfilled under Christ himself. And so, not only Isaiah's prophetic ministry, but, but really all of the prophets in Christ will have this. They'll have words to the people of God or words to the audiences that they come in contact with. That there should be repentance, there should be a knowledge that it's not the Assyrians that are the threat. It, it's not them who we need to be afraid of. Who do we need to get right with? Who's the Lord and King? It's the one reigning that, that if we could just see and have that veil removed, there he is. 
hearing though they won't hear. It's not because the the words of Isaiah or God himself is deficient. The message isn't deficient. There's not a fault there. It's not, Isaiah, I'm going to give to you such a strange and incoherent message that no one will understand. The fault isn't the message. It's the one who receives it. It will be received in hardness of heart. Paul shows this when he quotes this passage in several occasions, Acts 28-27, Romans 11 verse 8, that the blame for their blindness rests with themselves. It's, yes, according to the sovereign plan of the Lord, but they have shut their ears, they've closed their eyes. Though the plan and purpose of God, though God is sovereign over it, over it, they're not doing this outside of his plan, but the text shows that in God's plan, often his words are rejected by the hardened hearts of his people. That's what, that's what occurs, and we ask, why? Why is that? Why will the people not listen? Why is it God's plan to, to cut down, as the later portions of this text and later in Isaiah will get to, why, why does he cut down his people to the point where there's only a, a stump left? It, it seems to be fully judged. Why does he do that? I think one author has a good, good way of putting it. Isaiah is called upon to preach a message that given the already hardened hearts of his generation and several of the following will only push them farther away from God. Pause in that quote there. There is that purpose, that the idea here is that the message will make them turn further away from God. And how so? Well, you see it happen. We saw it in Lamentations. The, The message that God would judge and need to purify and discipline his people is one they will not hear. And and what does it do? It it forces them to false prophets. It forces them to actually put to death and execute the true prophets of God, to throw them in in prison, to put them in wells like they did to to Jeremiah. That's what they're going to do. They're actually going to be hardened and, and turn further away in the hardness of heart. But, as this author says, but some will turn. Among them, faithful followers of Isaiah who will preserve his words until the day when that cauterizing fires of the exile fall and there will finally be a generation willing to listen. Then real healing will result and the stage will be set for the promised Messiah to come. You see, Israel's calling, Isaiah's calling, is not to to success as the world counts success. This is the word of God going out to, to cause hardened hearts, but the faithfulness of the true people of the Lord will be borne out at the end. This understanding provides meaning to that last verse, to those final sentences that we read in this narrative, that the only hope of healing for these people is in their near total destruction, And it's only when all is lost and all has been stripped away from them that their hardness of heart of the remnant at least will be seen by them and that the scrap of hope appears. There is no other way, in other words. What's going to happen is a hardening of heart, a judgment even of the people who should know better so that what is produced is a righteous branch. So that what comes of it is the true remnant of God, which Romans 11 and Paul has said has always been the plan of the Lord. 
You know, we might give the same objection, the same objection that, that Paul does in Romans 9 as he's talking as an Israelite, as he's putting the case of the Israelites before him. And they would say, is not God unjust? Is not God unfaithful in this? That, that for his people, he has, he has turned them away. He's hardened their hearts. Is he unjust? And what does Romans 9 say? What if God, desiring to show his wrath, and to make known his power has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for his glory, even us whom he has called not from Jews only but also from the Gentiles. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. Why the cutting down? Why the stumps that remain? Because in the plan of God, he has endured with much patience vessels of wrath so that the vessels of his mercy would be better able to see his will, his plan, the gospel message itself. Even the the turning away of these people was not out of unfaithfulness of the Lord, but his faithfulness to his stump, to his seed, to his people. And if these things didn't happen, we would not know the love of God as we do now. And would we, we would not know how, how truly our, our hope only lies in the Lord coming down off of his throne and coming to the earth. That's why there is an exile. It is a disciplinary, disciplining hand. It is meant to turn the people back in the Lord's will, but it is meant to show forth his great plan and to show to so cleanse the people with this this judgment that is to come that they think that they're they're at their last strength because they have none they're a nation dispossessed they're a people without any inheritance they've been cut off but as you see there in the last verse which i want to read again and though a tenth remain in the land it will be burned again like a terebinth or an oak and now here's here's the hope whose stump remains when it is felled, the holy seed is its stump. The holy seed, the holy remnant, will be preserved. There will be a stump with a bit of life left in it. And from that remnant that seems to cling on to life itself, just like a a sheared stump of a tree, out of that will come the remnant of God, a holy seed, and the true holy seed. The promise to Eve herself, to mankind, the seed of the woman, the seed that is Jesus Christ, out of the remnant will come the holy seed to save his people. And, and why do we turn to Isaiah 6 at Advent? Because what is it? Who's the seed? The Lord, high and exalted on his throne, surrounded by seraphim and the burning ones of God, a throne so high, a robe so opulent, so holy, shakes the foundations not with a voice but with a descent, walking down the steps of a throne to come down to this people who, who were hardened, who didn't hear, who seemed to be dispossessed, to take upon themselves to, to, to come to that remnant and his people and to save them. As we look at the coming of Christ, as you look at the babe in a manger, don't forget the the message, the vision of Isaiah 6. 
It, it is the Lord who has come, but boy, does it not seem like a little sprig growing from a shorn trunk to have a little baby in the manger to be the one to save. Doesn't it seem unlikely? Doesn't it seem hopeless to, to place all your trust in him, but people of God, we, we've seen the answer. The vision has provided it. It's the Lord upon his throne. We, we have that whole picture that's the seed to come, and, and that's our hope. You see, stability doesn't lie with Uzziah, and danger doesn't come at the hands of Assyria, truly. Assyria is a weapon that God will use for his purposes and then judge just the same. It's Isaiah's experience that, that does provide that hope as well, the holiness of God encountered by a burning coal, and that is what the holy seed Jesus Christ brings from the altar of burnt offering, atonement. When we think of the coming of Christ, this is the, the visions we should think of, of grandeur and yet stumps, of, of power and yet veiled power. It's to harden people's hearts that only the people of God who he has saved will hear it, and that's what we are called to hear as well to trust in the Holy One of the Lord. That's what we're called to do, and that's why, as well, this text from Isaiah 6 is no less relevant for us today, 2,700 years later. The same Lord is on his throne, the same people and remnant the Lord will save, and those who place their faith in him have what Isaiah has, a holy coal placed to their lips to cleanse them from sin. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are thankful to see a vision that is at once and simultaneously glorious of your power and it helps us see a vision of who you are, but, but as well a fearful, awe-inspiring moment. May none of that be lost on us. May we at the, at the same time to d desire to understand, to see and speak of your holiness, but as well know that in our hearts is the response of Isaiah that we are undone, that woe was our own, our own keepings, that it was what we have done that should have deserved a woe and a death. But we know, Lord, that in your plan you save your people, you atone for them, that there will be, that there will be salvation in that remnant that you keep. And Father, we praise you for having seen it happen, as well as we pray for the trust that we are called to place that same hope in that, in that same holy seed, our Lord. And Lord, we do long to, to be in your presence, to see you as holy, and to praise your name. We ask this in your great name.